Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. It's The Roy Green Show podcast, and we begin with a book written by a University of Montreal researcher. His name is Jocelyn Coulon, and the book is A Selfie avec Justin Trudeau. A selfie with, and you can figure out the rest. You need to hear this. Beth is an Ontario chronic pain patient who, without their knowledge, recorded a phone call to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario and told them about her terrible story. Listen to this. Do members of mainstream media really have a left-wing liberal bias? Absolutely they do, argues Kenneth Stern, the former CEO of National Public Radio, NPR, in the United States, and an individual who tried to kill three members of Canada's military has been declared not criminally responsible and is being released into the community. Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown attorney, has his thoughts. Monsieur Coulon is a former advisor to the former Foreign Affairs Minister, Stéphane Dion. He was also the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. And uh, Monsieur Coulon details the tense non-relationship between Trudeau and the ex-Liberal Party leader, there are some other specific issues that uh, Monsieur Colon deals with as far as Monsieur Trudeau is concerned and uh, his, well, non-following up on promises, commitments, and aspirations he talked about during the leadership campaign for the Liberal Party and then also for the uh, election run-up in 2015. Jocelyn Coulon joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Monsieur Coulon, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for having me on your show, Roy. Why the title, A Selfie avec Justin Trudeau? Well, the title was uh, uh, something that uh, Justin Trudeau uh, spoke about himself a few days after being sworn in as Prime Minister in November 2015. He gave an interview to the Canadian press, and the journalist asked him, uh, what do you think of your uh, your image uh, in the world? Uh, you're you're a fan of uh, a selfie. Uh, you like to uh, to have your picture published in Paris Match or in Vogue magazine. And uh, the prime minister answered that uh, if he if he has to promote Canada and if he has to promote. Uh, his image and the image of his government through social media like selfie or other device, he will do it. Therefore, I thought it was interesting to, uh, uh, to take this as the title of my book. It really has become synonymous. The selfie has become synonymous with uh, Justin Trudeau. Now, your book is extremely popular in Quebec, and we're very much hoping that there's going to be an English-language edition uh, before, yeah, too much. <laughs> yeah, before too long. Well, certainly tell your publisher there's a tremendous amount of interest in, uh, in the rest of Canada. But uh, what is it about Justin Trudeau that most interests Quebecers, or perhaps most disappoints Quebecers? Well, for the moment, uh, the Prime Minister is quite popular in Quebec. I think it is much more popular in Quebec than in the rest uh, of Canada. One of the reasons for that 
is that the two other uh, leaders of the opposition, the NDP and the Conservative, are not well known in Quebec. And therefore, uh, Justin Trudeau is uh, is uh, popular because of this, but also because of his uh, of his family. I mean, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was prime minister for 16 years. He always win hugely in Quebec. If you remember, Roy, uh, at that time there was uh, about 75 seats in Quebec. And Pierre Elliott Trudeau got 74. I remember. You remember that? I do. Ex- except uh, when uh, when Joe Clark was elected in 1979. But uh, therefore, you have this memory, this history of the Trudeau uh, dynasty. That's that's part of the explanation. We'll see next year uh, during the general election if he is able to win more seats because, uh, as I understand, he could lose seats uh, in the west part of Canada. Now, in the book, you write about the relationship or lack of relationship that existed between Monsieur Trudeau and Monsieur Dion, who uh, who is also a former Liberal Party leader, and uh, that it came to a abrupt ending... Could you speak to us about uh, about that, and why was there this lack of a relationship between Stéphane Dion and Justin Trudeau? Well, I think the bad blood uh, between uh, both uh, both uh, leader uh, begin in two thousand seven. If you remember, Dion uh, has just been elected leader of uh, the Liberal Party, but at the same time. Uh, there was a by-election in Outremont because uh, Jean Lapierre has resigned as a member of parliament. Mm-hmm. And uh, Justin Trudeau thought that he could, uh, he could run in Outremont and being elected as a, a member of parliament. But unfortunately, uh, Stéphane Dion has decided to choose me as a candidate in uh, Outremont. And uh, he said to uh, to Justin Trudeau to 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 look around uh, for another writing, and uh, this this uh, incident, uh, Justin Trudeau talked about it in his own autobiography that he has published a few few years ago, and I think that the relationship uh, uh, started badly in 2007 and uh, it did not improve. Therefore, in 2015, when uh, the government was elected, Stéphane Dion was a former liberal leader and re-elected in the riding of Saint-Laurent. Therefore, Justin Trudeau has to offer him uh, a prestigious uh, cabinet uh, posting. And uh, then he selected him as uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. And at that time, uh, uh, Dion asked me to become his uh, senior policy advisor. And uh, during the 14 months where Dion was Minister of Foreign Affairs, he never sat down on a one-on-one basis 
with the prime minister to discuss foreign policy. You know, that's almost unheard that's, of. That really is, that yeah. has to be unheard of. I mean, it's it's quite unbelievable, and uh, I have uh, I have given a lot of interview to European uh, journalists, uh, and the first question they have asked me is how come the prime minister is unable to meet his foreign affairs minister, one of the most important posting in his cabinet, and. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out what is the reason, and uh, there's there's different uh, narrative about that, but uh, only only uh, Justin Trudeau could explain that. So, Monsieur Collant, you worked with uh, Monsieur Dion, the Foreign Affairs Minister appointed by Justin Trudeau. You were the uh, senior advisor. You had run uh, for the Liberal Party in Outremont, and I believe there might have been an NDP member who won that election. Yes. Can't remember his name. Mulcair? Thomas Milke. Yeah, yeah, it comes to mind. So, <laughs> so here you are. You're the advisor to Stefan Dion, who doesn't have much of a relationship with the prime minister. And uh, before I ask you about how that relationship ended, you also write in the book that there's very little in the way of interest in foreign affairs in the prime minister's office and with his advisors. They don't really care what's going on in the rest of the world. Yeah. Well, you just have to look at the way the India trip. Uh, un- unfold. I mean, if there was somebody who care about uh, international relations and the way we should behave on the international scene, they would have advised the prime minister not to show up uh, w- uh, dress like uh, uh, an Hindu person. You know, yeah. uh, be, because as as you know, in India, uh, religious and political issues are very sensitive since the independence in 1948. And uh, this huge country, uh, country has held together for the last 70 years uh, because it has managed its religious and political relation with some kind of sophistication. And then suddenly you have someone who arrived by plane and who, uh, who, who uh, get out of the plane and he's dressed like, uh, like an Indian. And people were stunned about that. And uh, what was the result of this, uh, of this uh, trip? Well, not 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 much if uh, no can i play can i just play something for you at yes. that time we spoke uh, with an indian journalist very popular in uh, in india and uh, i asked him whether the justin trudeau's visit had done anything to not necessarily harm but not do any good for the relationship between canada and india here's what he said Oh, absolutely, because until now, the uh, India and Canada diplomats were, uh, you know, quietly exchanging notes about the Indian concern on Palestine, and the Canadian side was saying, hey, freedom of speech, freedom of speech, and the Indian side was saying, it's not freedom of speech, it's the Canadian government is giving them a free pass. But that dispute now has come out in the open. Now, people in India are saying the Canadian government is doing something that's against India. And I think that's really bad PR for the Canadian government in India. 
and it seems that Mr. Trudeau doesn't care. He cares more about his domestic vote bank. So there's Shivam Vij. He's the uh, Indian journalist, and clearly the feeling was that, uh, as he said, in India, that Mr. Trudeau was doing something negative toward India. He also told us that the Indian government didn't really want Mr. Trudeau there, and they knew he wasn't there to foster the relationship between Canada and India, but he was there to appeal to Indian voters uh, in in uh, in in Canada. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, and uh, you just have to look at the Eric Grenier website uh, on CBC, and he he is tracking all the votes, uh, the sometimes the ethnic votes in some writings. And uh, in Canada, you have 25 writings where you can find more than 20% of the vote come from what we call the Indian uh, community at large. It includes Sri Lanka, uh, India, uh, and other uh, near-war countries. Mm -hmm. Well, the Liberal win 24 of these 25 uh, writings. Uh, therefore, there there was uh, uh, an electoral uh, focus on on this trip, and and just to compare, uh, Trudeau spent eight. I think it was a full week in India, and he collected for about a, a billion dollar of contract. Few days later, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, arrived dressed like. An European, he spent three days, and he signed for twenty billions of contracts. Well, that tells Therefore, the story, isn't it? You, you have to wonder uh, what what happened in the office of the prime minister in the planning of this uh, of this trip. Yeah, you do. You have to wonder whether there's any planning now. Yeah, we have less than a minute left. Uh, do they not care? You know, you're right about this. But it just seems to be that there is no real interest in foreign affairs and what happens in the rest of the world in the Trudeau government. I think so. I, I think the, there's not a strong uh, advisor uh, at the PMO. There used to be a diplomatic advisor, Roland Paris, from the University of Ottawa, but he left six months after being uh, uh, named as a diplomatic advisor. And since then, uh, it is the inner circle of, uh, of Justin Trudeau who decide these, uh, these questions with, with Christian Freeland. But as you know, Christian Freeland is 99% uh, focused on the United States, which right. I understand right. also. It's yeah. important. Uh, well, uh, Jocelyn, thank you so much for taking the time. You're on vacation, uh, and, I, uh, and I appreciate you interrupting the vacation to talk to me, and I uh, hope you'll come back. Thank you. All the very best. Jocelyn Coulon is the author of Un Selfie avec Justin Trudeau. Now, I want to introduce you to a young woman from, uh, from Ontario. Her name is Beth. She's a chronic pain patient. And she was born with spinal cancer. Now, imagine that. You're born with cancer. And it is immediately going to color every aspect of your life. And Beth has, uh, is struggling tremendously at the moment because she's caught up in this whole fake opioid crisis. Talk about fake news. As the politicians and uh, 
The doctors, not all of them, but most of them are afraid of others who hold the uh, key to whether or not they lose their license, the doctors who are afraid. As the doctors are refusing to provide the kind of opioid pain relief that chronic pain patients require, and in many cases have been getting for, for decades, because we're told that there's, a, there's an opioid crisis. But the crisis that's being created is that pain patients are being consigned to a life of hell. The deaths that are being reported in the majority, vast majority, are of what I call generic drug um, addicts who buy their wares from corner drug dealers, street corner drug dealers. And I feel for these people, but it is so unfair and it's such a disingenuous approach to say that the patients, the chronic pain patients, are um, somehow being systemically harmed by their opioid medication when that's regularly the only medication that provides them with any quality of life. And the doctors who are responsible for this and the politicians who are responsible for this, not a one of them will come within 100 miles of this program now because they know it's not going to be easy for them, as Jane Philpott found out when she was the federal minister of health. Let me introduce you to Beth. Beth is the young woman I was talking to you about uh, from uh, from Ontario, the chronic pain patient. Uh, Beth, we were hoping to uh, be able to get Anne-Marie Gordon, who you know well, a registered social worker and psychotherapist on the program, but we're not, not able to reach Anne-Marie at the moment, but we'll keep trying. Thank you for coming on the air, and thank you for having the incredible courage to stand up and to do what you did as far as your conversation with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario is concerned. Hi, Roy. Thank you so much for having me on the show and for all that you're doing, uh, standing up for myself and all the other patients like me. It's my pleasure, and it's my responsibility, and it's the responsibility of other people in our business, and, and it's responsibility of the brigands in the medical and political professions who are putting your lives at risk. Tell us about you. What is it you're living with? What is your pain like on a daily basis? And uh, how readily available to you is the opioid medication that you require that you were prescribed for a long period of time? Um, well, I was in pain management for, um, well, it's been over almost 12 years now, maybe over 12 years now. And it was providing me uh, as good a quality of life as I could get in my situation. And, uh, giving me um, ability to do all the things I love, make art, walk my dog, um, just enjoy time with friends and family. And uh, unfortunately, since all this happened and they started um, painting all of us patients with the same brush and making wide swept policies that instead of treating each patient like a person and uh, just painting us all with the same policy and uh, reducing everybody's meds down to a ridiculous number for people that have been on this medication for a long time. And uh, now I uh, no longer get the meds that were giving me a quality of life that I could enjoy. And uh, I get very little enough to get through maybe six to eight hours out of the day and somewhat comfortably. 
and the uh, rest of my days are, they use a, a pain scale of 1 to 10. And on a good day uh, over the years, a good day for me is 2 to 3. That's a great day for me. And um, now they, with the situation I'm in, my days are spent, most of my hours are spent over 5, uh, quite a few, 8 to 10. And um, just n- not very much relief. Yeah. And going to the doctors is now the most stressful thing that I, I can do. Beth is uh, with me, and here's what she did. She did what the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario suggests to pain patients who believe they're having an issue with their doctor or with uh, just getting the medications they require or they're not being looked after properly. So she called the number, and she spoke with someone at the college, and she recorded that conversation without them knowing it. So, Beth, if you're okay with it, we're going to play that conversation now. Okay. Have a listen, ladies and gentlemen, to how this conversation went. The reason I'm calling is because my doctor uh, tapered me very quickly and um, without my consent and uh, against my constant begging him to please stop and please help me because I can't live this way. I've been tapered down to a dose that I'm no longer comfortable or able to function daily at. I understand that my doctors was under investigation and went through a nine month uh, monitored by you guys, CPSO, and um, according to my doctor, I was singled out by an investigator as a person who must be selling and even Though my doctor is uh, no longer under investigation, he refuses to put my dose back to a functionable uh, level where I can function daily. And um, he insists on other drugs that I've already tried. I've been on this medication for over a decade. Medication? On uh, oxycodone for over a decade. And I have been at rather high doses in the past and tapered myself down to a functional level that was uh, one-third of what I was getting previously, many, many years ago, 2013, 2010 to 2013. And I told the doctor he knew about this, and when, I, when the doctor I'm with now took over my care, over five, six, going on six years ago, I believe now. Five, maybe five years still. Um, I he I explained my whole situation to him, showed him where I've been, where I was at now, and that um, I was making that new dose work comfortably and able to function, and he was happy to keep me there until um, August 2017 which I understand now is when you guys started investigating him. And he uh, tapered me very quickly down to a dose that I have not been able to function at in a very long time. My leg. The tapering period was done over the course of a couple months. Okay. And um, I have explained, I was just there yesterday for another appointment, my, my, my next, my appointment current, the appointment I just had was yesterday, and I explained to him again that I'm not able to function 
with, with where I'm at now. It's, I'm in severe pain. I am not sleeping. I need help. I have to weigh the options every day whether or not to take my own life, but I don't want to live like this anymore. He told me that he likes me, but he likes his license better. And the only thing he's willing to do is prescribe other drugs that I've already taken and tried in the past many years ago that have made me sick. Which, because he was unwilling to help me in any other way and telling me that I'm not open-minded, I decided I'd give it a shot again. It's been many years, so I'll try it again. And he prescribed to me. I took the pill when I got home yesterday, and I lost my entire day. Everything, at first I felt nauseous. Everything started to spin. Every time I'd open my eyes, the whole room was spinning around me. I tried laying down and shut my eyes, and I just, all I could see was like these colored darkness with colored squares coming at me. It was awful. I, my doctor's name is uh, Dr. Yeah. I've been with him for about five years. That's okay. The um, I was finally able to sleep for maybe an hour yesterday, and when I woke up, I still felt like my head was in a cloud, and like I had the worst hangover. And I don't even drink. I haven't drank in over a decade, and. I felt like the hangover was just the worst hangover ever. It was awful. I I never want to take another one of those pills again. But besides that, that therapy, I've on my own been trying other therapies that my doctor's well aware of. I tried. I've been doing acupuncture every week. I've tried swimming. Um, had injections when I was going up to Luna. He was giving me these blocker injections, so like between 50 and 60 injections through my back and my head. All of these things have had a very minor effect on making me comfortable, that it does not last. Um, I realized that I was on a very extremely high dose that was probably not best for me. But even with this current taper, I might have been okay, but it just has gone too far. Okay. And it's not fair that I've been forced to live in so much discomfort and pain when just a couple pills a day would significantly change my life. Um, he tried referring me to a pain clinic in Luna, which is two hours away from me. And he says they refuse to see me, and he won't tell me why. Um, he's trying, he's sending another referral up to an option, which is four hours away from me. And I have to wait to find out. He just did that yesterday, so I have to wait to find out what's going to happen with that. Um, so I need to know... Since you guys are the ones who have put the fear in him and all other doctors who won't touch me with a ten-foot pole because of the medication I'm on, what I'm supposed to do? That's like an incredibly difficult situation. 
When did the position start to take earlier? What approximately? August 2017. So August 2017. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a number of situations. You know, the public service that the college offers is the complaints process. Um, So there, there's more in that uh, conversation, but you, you, you understand, listening to this program, folks, what's happening. This person at the CPSO especially seems to be in saying, mm-hmm, and he told Beth, well, you've pretty much done everything you can do, and you can start the f- complaints process. Beth, as you listen to that, listen back to that, how do you feel? And you told this man that you were born with cancer. Yeah. You just get, I just have the feeling that it, it sounds to me like, first of all, he's not a doctor. That's my guess. And uh, it sounds like he's probably somebody who has a lot of experience with a call center. And he's been given things to say, and he said them, and, and he specializes in saying, mm-hmm. So here's something that I read in the New York Post last October. Now, just read you a few sentences. Most reporters and editors are liberal. An outdated Pew Press Research Center poll found that liberals outnumber conservatives in the media by some five to one, and that comports with my own anecdotal experience at National Public Radio. When you're liberal and everyone else around you is as well, it's easy to fall into groupthink on what stories are important, what sources are legitimate, and what the narrative of the day will be. This may seem like an unusual admission from someone who once ran NPR, but it's born of recent experience, spurred by a fear that red and blue America were drifting irrevocably apart. I decided to venture out from my overwhelmingly Democrat neighborhood and engage Republicans where they live, work, and pray. For an entire year, I embedded myself with the other side, standing in pit row at a NASCAR race, hanging out at Tea Party meetings, 
and sitting in on Steve Bannon's radio show. I found an America far different from the one depicted in the press and imagined by presidents cling to guns or religion and presidential candidates, baskets of deplorables like. Ken Stern wrote those words. He is the former CEO of NPR, National Public Radio. He is uh, also the author of Republicans Like Me, How I Left the Liberal Bubble and Learned to Love the Right. Well, first of all, Ken, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for seeing the light. Well, thanks for having me on, <laughs> on the show, show Roy. It's, um, you know, it, it, politics has become, as you sort of said in this intro, politics has become so contentious so personal um, and so freighted with, you know, what what we assume the other side is like, um, you know, it's just a hard subject to talk about. And you know, it's what I try to do in my book was to put aside some of my prior assumptions of what the other side was like and find out there are you know, lots of reasons to like the other side and to find uh, uh, room for common ground. You know, not so long ago, the narrative was, well, they don't get along. The left and the right in Washington, the left and the right in Ottawa, the left and the right in other capitals around the world, they just don't get along. There's there's a deadlock. There's uh, They just can't work things out together. And that's as far as the conversation went. Now, a few weeks ago, I spoke with uh, the managing editor of Rasmussen Polling, Fran Coombs, who's been a regular contributor here. Sure. And uh, yeah. Fran told us that their polling shows that it's, I think it's 31% of Americans expect another civil war and sooner than later. We weren't able to define exactly what that civil war would look like, but the words civil war are enough to run a chill down your spine. So have we morphed from saying, oh, they just don't get along to the point where people will actually possibly begin to be extremely violent toward one another based on their political disagreements? Well, I mean, we've already seen um, some aspects of it. I mean, the shooting of Steve, Stephen Scalise uh, and some of the Republican members of Congress is an example of that. I mean, I hope it's isolated. Um, I, it is I still isolated. Um, you know, but we have begun to personalize politics. Um, it's actually, the thing is, the thing that drove me to, to write my book was the fact that um, um, we don't actually disagree uh, about politics any more than we used to. I mean, you actually look at the data around sort of issue disagreement. No, no different than it was 20 years ago. We just hate the other side uh, a lot more. Um, one thing that pollsters like Rasmussen, all the things Gallup has done, has tracked for like 50 years is um, whether you'd want your son or daughter to marry someone from a different uh, uh, from a different political party. And when they started writing about that 50 years ago, you know, it was a ridiculous question. Of, who cared? Um, but now over half the people in the United States don't want their offspring marrying someone from the other side. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's really not the issue. It's just this assumption that the other side is evil, deplorable, wrong-headed, bad morals, all those things um, that tend to break down when you actually get to know people. Um, but it, it's how we sort of imagine the other side now. And we live more and more in our own bubbles and don't know the other side. And that's what really worries me. And we take that attitude, we take that level of fear, anxiety, anger, hatred, and we carry it into newsrooms, we carry it into news organizations, we carry it into the very organizations that provide information to the general public, which is already on edge. Yeah, 
I think that's right. I mean, one of the questions I've been, I, I, I grew up in uh, mainstream media, uh, ran NPR for a decade, admired the organization um, then and now. Um, uh, but one of the questions as I sort of traveled the country was like, why are people so angry at media? And part of what I was trying to do is learn, you know, the, 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 the unconscious effect of groupthink. I mean, that's entirely what my book was about. And I heard, you know, people feel reasonably that uh, major media from New York and Washington and L.A. don't really represent us. They don't depict us right. They don't cover the issues we care about. Um, they caricaturize us, and that made people angry. And Donald Trump has then turned that, you know, sort of sort of thoughtful issue into enemies of the state, and that's dangerous. Oh, I, I, I don't disagree at all. I think the United States, and to a certain extent this country as well, is, uh, is, is, is boiling over. And your country far more, far more so than ours, and Mr. Trump is very happy to be out there and, and stirring the pot. And that's going to get me some emails as well. Ken, I, I want to ask you about how stories are delivered uh, to the consumer, the consumer who has a suspicion of media, and perhaps a well-founded suspicion of media, and perhaps the best way I can do this is to quote from the story, the article that you wrote for the New York Post. Uh, you wrote about the year that you embedded with the right of the political spectrum, philosophical spectrum, and you wrote in part, over the course of this year, I've tried to consume media as they do and understand it as a partisan player. It's not so hard to do. Take guns. Gun control and gun rights is one of our most divisive issues and there are legitimate points on both sides. But media is obsessed with the gun control side and gives only scant, mostly negative recognition to the gun rights side. This is something that in this country we can also identify with, even though we don't have nearly as many guns on the street. It's an issue that keeps constantly talked about. It's on the front burner right now in Canada. So would you please speak to us about the, the combine the media delivery of news and, and, the, gun, and the gun issue? So, so my way into the book, Roy, was um, uh, I organized around by not just traveling around the country um, and meeting people I wouldn't normally meet, but I decided to organize around a, a number of issues that I knew I didn't know tons about. I hadn't studied them and really weren't a great person. Uh, but I was nonetheless sure I was right about And gun control was one of them. Um, you know, how could anyone be against sensible gun control, uh, which I know is an issue in Canada as well. So I just spent a lot. Of, I spent a lot of time at gun shows with John Lott, uh, conservative economist, went hunting in Texas. And I really tried to understand the issue and its complexity. And it turns out to be complex. Um, you know, uh, um, I still remain for sensible gun control, um, broadly defined. Um, but I understand the complexities and why people disagree with it, and why you know why the issue is um, viewed differently by different people. And um, I wrote about that experience in my book, um, but I also recognize as I talk to people, um, you know, most of the people I think in newsrooms um, probably have the same going in experience that I do. Um, you know, they're they're primarily from non-gun areas of the country. They're probably not gun owners. They are talking to people who are similarly situated, similarly minded as they are. And I think it's reflected in the coverage and the assumption that one side is right and the other side is wrong. I think that really ticks people off. 
Um, and, you know, the, what I wrote in the New York Post was really to urge my colleagues in the mainstream media just to try to think a little bit more broadly about coverage and understand why why the complaints um, uh, um, were so significant and why that gives a wedge to someone like Donald Trump, who I think is didn't create this divide, but certainly has exploited it. How is what you've done being received by those on the left who used to be your buddies in the newsroom, who used to be your supporters who understood you? Do they understand you at all now? Do they talk to you? How's the relationship? So it's, it's, uh, it's complicated. I mean, I think, you know, when you write a book that's titled Republican Like Me, how you, uh, um, uh, how you left the liberal bubble and learned to love the right, um, you get a lot of people judging it by the cover, uh, which I was taught in grade school not to do, um, uh, and gotten a lot of people angry about them. Uh, and some people, you know, um, it's hard being in the media right now, as you know. I mean, you take a lot of incoming um, fair and unfair. And, you know, I think there's a foxhole mentality in parts of uh, the media that has made some people angry at me. Um, but a lot of, you know, I mean, a lot of people know um, as well, recognize the, cha- the truth of it, you know, that this is largely a liberal environment in mainstream media. Um, it's just hard to tackle. Uh, and I think people, a lot of people in the media recognize that and think about that and, and struggle with it, if not entirely successfully. In this year of yours that you, uh, where you traveled uh, on the right and you went pig farming, uh, pig farming, pig hunting. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah. maybe it's pig farming. Uh, you went pig hunting in Texas. You did, uh, you were in NASCAR uh, uh, pit lane. And it, was there a, it, was there an incident? Was there a moment that, tipped you over to to the right side of the spectrum? Well, I never really. So um, what I did, when I said I learned to love the right, um, I think more of the bonds affection that Lincoln wrote about, uh, talked about um, after the Civil War, um, and the notion that, um, you know, we might disagree, but we're all in this together. We share some common goals. We share a lot more in common than we think we do. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, I find it hard to be, in, in another era, I might have actually turned out to be a Republican. I find it hard to be a Republican in, era, in, era, in the Trump era, um, as you may have guessed from some of my comments here. Um, but what I've grown is to really admire and respect a lot of the people I met along the way. Very conservative people, people in churches, people in uh, politics, people at uh, conservative think tanks, people, you know, just uh, ordinary people I met in Pikeville, Kentucky, or Gonzales, Texas. Um, and it was a constant reminder that no one has um, a monopoly on what's right or what's wrong, uh, and that we're all better off listening to each other rather than, as we seem to do, throw all sorts of bombs, F-bombs, and other types of bombs these days, uh, yeah. which seems to be the coin of, uh, of political dialogue these days, and you know, that's really what the book is about. You're right. It's, it starts with anger. It used to build to anger, but now it starts with anger and builds to rage. A lot of the conversation, yeah. a lot of the exchanges that we have. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I, I really appreciate it. The book is necessary, and it's an excellent, excellent read. And uh, I think everybody should thank get a hold of it. Republicans Like Me, and it's by uh, Kenneth Stern, former CEO of National Public Radio in the United States. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for having me on the show. All the best. Scott York, former Crown Attorney. In Alberta, and uh, here we go again. It's not criminally responsible. How many times do we talk about this particular situation? And in this case, 
It's an individual who uh, attempted to kill uh, three members of Canada's military um, using a knife at a recruitment center in North York in Toronto. And he's in a hospital setting in, in Hamilton at the moment. But he's being incrementally released. And I say, Scott, here we go again. No kidding, eh? Uh, and what, what struck me about this one in particular, because this happened in uh, 2016, and it was just uh, in the middle of May when the judge came back with his ruling that he was uh, not criminally responsible. What struck me about this was that uh, it, I found that uh, finding to be uh, strange, given the fact this guy admitted that he knew what he was doing. His, he gave a motivation for it, which was that he had uh, decided that Allah had told him he was supposed to go do this, to become a martyr, and it was, um, however uh, unjustified, from his perspective it was rational because he was he decided that uh, military soldiers were legitimate targets due to Canadian military action in Muslim countries. In other words... He clearly knew exactly what he was doing, and it appears, based on the stuff that I've read, that it really came down to that he decided to follow what he believed to be Allah's directions rather than uh, Canadian law. So I question right off the top even the finding of uh, not criminally responsible. It does not sound like the Crown appealed that ruling, Roy, but instead what happens when someone is found not criminally responsible, either the sentencing judge makes the initial order about when it is that, uh, you know, what's going to happen with the person, whether they're going to be uh, in, um, uh, it's called an absolute order, where there's, uh, there's no release. And then I think they review it every year. They, they have a review board. Or the judge doesn't make the ruling and it goes directly to the review board, which is what appears to have taken place in this case, because two months after he's convicted, as you said, the review board has now said, well, um, yeah, okay, he's going to be uh, detained in a secure forensic unit, but uh, over the course of the next year, uh, the uh, hospital staff may permit him to enter the community in southern Ontario while accompanied by staff or someone approved by the hospital. Who knows what the, who that is? And also, uh, if uh, the hospital agrees, they'll even let him go uh, sort of within uh, two miles of the, uh, two kilometers of the healthcare center uh, without direct supervision. So I must admit, as you say, here we go again. Canada has this history, I think, in, in many cases, where we just, you know, the crime becomes the defense. And as a result of that, it's, we don't, I, I don't think, take appropriate consideration of public interest in having somebody like this just walking around. Yeah, because there's some guy by the name of Will Baker who's wandering around somewhere with no criminal record, with no nothing to indicate yeah. that when he was called Vince Lee, Lee. he uh, decapitated and committed cannibalism on Tim McLean on a Greyhound bus yeah. in, in Manitoba. Now he's walking around and he's Will, what was it again? Will John, what did I say? And can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, we let people like that change their name? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, I think we're uh, extending the... Uh, Will Baker. Yeah, I think we're extending the uh, the application of this not criminally uh, responsible. But, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, you'll remember in the old days it used to be called uh, insanity. Now it's called not criminally responsible. Yeah. And I think that new uh, nomenclature actually defines the way the entire system looks at that person is that 
you just ignore what it is that they did to get to where they are. Exactly. Scott? I think that is a huge mistake. Thank you, sir, for your time. Always appreciate it. Always a voice of sanity in the wilderness. I'll uh, go back and look at my nuclear weapons collection. Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, send, send, send some pictures. Post some pictures. Yeah. Okay. Can't, can't do that. Okay. <laughs> Scott Newark. On the Roy Green Show. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.